We're going to transition uh, this week. We're going to uh, um, end up our series on standing firm in Christ, and uh, we're going to move into our next section. If uh, you picked up your bulletins, then you have a bookmark in there, and in the bookmark it says that we are going to enter into the compassion of Christ. And uh, the compassion of Christ is not only his compassion for us, but also our compassion for others because we are acting in the name of Christ. And so this, uh, the rest of this year is going to be spent on that as our, as our theme. Um, we're ending Micah today with uh, Micah chapter 7. Um, let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the preciousness of it. We thank you for the fact that we can always turn to it to find truth, to find comfort, to find encouragement, sometimes to find correction. Lord God, we thank you for that as well. We ask that you might bless our time this afternoon, that you might bless this reading from your holy word, that we might be edified by it, built up by it, encouraged by it, and drawn near to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You know, the prophet Micah sounds like a man who swings back and forth between well, um, elation and depression, <laughs> um, between hope and despair. If you remember, if uh, you were here seven weeks ago, as we began our study of Micah, I said that, in a sense, Micah is ringing a bell, that he is tolling it for us, uh, for you and for me. It's an alarm when it rings, warning of the judgment to come, and yet he also rings it in celebration of God's available mercy. Now, both of these things, justice and mercy, warning and promise, are recorded in God's Word. And we ought to rejoice in both. Thankful for God's correction. Thankful, as we heard last week. If you did not hear last week's message, I encourage you to listen to it online. It was a great one. Both of those are recorded in God's Word. We should rejoice in both. Thankful for God's correction. Grateful for His encouragement. Grateful for His encouragement. Micah tells of a shepherd throughout his book, a ruler in Israel, someone who is going to come and will save his people. And when the time had come for the appearance of this Messiah, this Christ, Herod's priests turned to Micah's prophecies to find out where the Christ would be born. And because we just got past Christmas, you know that was Bethlehem. Micah was a prophet, but he was also a poet. He used images and figures of speech that we can uh, kind of get lost in when it gets translated. Sometimes the translations don't quite capture the feel of it. And he alludes to things, he hints at them. He doesn't actually say them outright. That can be frustrating. Sometimes you can read that, you know, and go right to sleep because you just, what in the world is he talking about? Now in chapter 1, Micah castigates several representative cities who contributed to Israel's downfall. I'm just going to give you a little overview of where we've been so far. In chapters 2 and 3, he castigates the rich and he castigates the powerful who failed to properly care for God's people. And yet he reveals the promise of God that one is coming who will breach the prison walls to set the captives free. In Micah 2.13, he says this, He who opens the breach goes be up before them. They break through and pass the gate, going out by it. Their king passes on before them, the Lord at their head. He mentions unjust rulers. He mentions wicked priests and false prophets. We have plenty of those these days, don't we? He distinguished the things that promote life from those that promote death. He was teaching God's people the way of holiness, and therefore he's teaching us the way of holiness. So Micah is well worth reading and studying and meditating upon and listening to. In chapter 4, Micah curses the land. Reminds me of the cursing of the land when Adam fell. 
The very land was cursed for his namesake. And Micah curses the land which will be plowed under by the Assyrians who are at the city gates. But then he offers hope. But then he offers hope. The mountain of God, Mount Zion, will remain firmly established. The people of God will stream to it. His priests will teach the law. And his prophets will preach his word. He says in Micah 4.2, He will teach us his ways and we shall walk in his paths. In chapter 5, Micah begins his prophecies concerning the coming Savior, telling us that God will use a small town to fulfill his will. You know, sometimes you come from a small town, you think, I've got to get out of here. You know, nothing's ever going to happen in this town, and I don't want to get stuck here. But here we have God coming to a small town, saying, but you, you, oh you, Bethlehem in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so Bethlehem was about to uh, find its place on the map. It's kind of like what happened in Colorado Springs back in the 80s. Foot of one of the 10 most beautiful cities in America to live in, and then everybody came. Anyway, side, side, side. He contrasts, Micah contrasts, the shepherd's victories with the weakness of human rulers. He tells of the remnant that will be a refreshing dew and of God's blessings that will shower down upon them. Wow, what a promise. What a blessing to be spoken over you. And this kingdom he's speaking of cannot be conquered. Cannot be conquered. They're about to be conquered, but this kingdom that's coming will never be conquered. But, but, God must purge the evil from among them. Why? To make way. Remember John the Baptist. Well, who are you? Well, I'm a, I'm a voice calling in the desert. Right? Making, making way for the righteousness, for the righteous one to come. Making straight the paths. In chapter 6, a lawsuit is issued against Israel. We heard about that last time. There is a summons to appear in court, and accusations are levied against it by Micah, who's going to play the part of the prosecutor. As Josh put it, Israel had a spiritual hearing problem. But instead of pronouncing judgment on them, the judge offers an opportunity to repent. For there's no defense that can be raised by the accused. They have no defense for the accusations being leveled against them. Micah lays out the requirement of the law in no uncertain terms. This is Micah 6.8. He has told you, O man, what is good. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? And now we come to chapter 7. So if you haven't opened to it yet, please turn to Micah chapter 7. This is Micah's personal testimony of his despair over the plight of his people and his shock at the extent of their sinfulness. I watch the news and I get despondent despairing at the wickedness that I see on the screen in front of me. This is how Micah was. And yet, he remains hopeful of God's grace and mercy, as do I, even in the face of God's judgment. Micah cannot look at anything in this world that's going to give him hope. There's nothing that he looks for, nothing he can find that's going to give him hope, not in this world. And so he hopes in God alone. That's the lesson we must all learn. That's the lesson we're going to take away from today. Micah can put his trust in no man, no form of government, no economic system. Micah can put his trust in nothing in this world, and so he trusts in God alone. And that's our takeaway today. Our hope and our trust are in God alone. Micah has spent six chapters proving to us why this is so. And here then is Micah's conclusion from chapter 7. This is 7 verse 1. Woe is me. (laughs) How's that for a conclusion? (laughs) Boy, am I in deep kimchi. 
Woe is me, for I am like those who gather summer fruits, like those who glean vintage grapes. Now, if you have the picture of that, you know this from um, the Old Testament, that they would go and they would gather up the crops. They go and they take all the grapes down off the vines, and then they would allow gleaners to come through and pick up the remnants. So he's saying here that once those gatherers are done, getting all the good stuff, he says there's no cluster left to eat. Not of the first fruit, not of the first ripe fruit, which my soul desires. I desire that first ripe fruit from God. And he looks around him in this world and he says, I, I, I can't find any first fruits. I can't find that ripe fruit that I've been looking for. He says there is no cluster to eat. Of the first ripe fruit which my soul desires, only leftovers remain. That's what he's saying. I go looking for that righteousness I expect, and all I can find is leftovers. I don't know if you recall, but that's essentially what Cain offered to God for his offering. And God was not pleased. It was not acceptable to God to offer him his leftovers. The first fruit that God seeks is spiritual fruit. That's what he expects from us. Spiritual fruit. The fruit of God's word at work in his people. How's that for a pithy phrase? God's word should be at work in his people. It should be evidencing itself in his people. It's the fruit of righteousness, but none is to be found. Paul later lamented, you know, there's none that's righteous. No, not, 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 not even one. It's from Romans 3.10. Micah's contemporaries, the prophets Isaiah and Hosea, lived at the same time that he did. Also called for the first fruits. Isaiah writes the following. We'll put it up on the screen for you. The work of righteousness will be peace. The work of righteousness will be peace. And the effect of that righteousness, the outcome of that, is quietness and assurance forever. Righteousness produces those two things. Quietness or peace and assurance forever. We've already heard that this morning in prayer, haven't we? In other words, do you seek peace? Do you, do you want quietness? Are you after assurance? Well, guess what? First be righteous. First be righteous, and then all these things will come to you. So Hosea, Hosea, his other contemporary, writes the following. He says, sow for yourselves righteousness. Plant them like seeds in the ground. Reap in mercy. If you sow righteousness, you will reap mercy. And he tells them, if you're going to do that, you're going to have to break up your fallow ground. The stuff that's been hardened by Ignoring it for so long by that deceitfulness of sin that's made the ground around you hard. That spiritual ground needs to be torn up so you can plant good seeds, seeds of righteousness. That's the image that he's giving to us. He's saying it's time to plant righteousness or else there won't be any harvest of mercy. If we don't plant that righteousness, there will be no harvest of mercy to come. The one must precede the other. If you sow righteousness unto God, he will shower you with righteousness. If you are righteous, says the Lord... I will be merciful to you. That doesn't sound right, does it? It doesn't sound, no, no, no. See, if I'm sinful, then then, then I get mercy and I get, no, I'm telling you, sow righteousness. It will always be imperfect, but I want you to sow the righteousness and my mercy will shower over you. If you seek me in prayer, I will rain down my righteousness. I will rain down my goodness upon you. I will plead your cause myself I will grant you relief from your enemies if you plant those righteous seeds. I will do that for you. Can you hear Christ in all this? He is our advocate in heaven, our lawyer, our attorney. 
pleading our cause on our behalf, offering His righteousness as our own. That does not exempt us from righteousness. That does not exempt us from doing what is right. Christ is the perfection of our righteousness. But we cannot continue in our sin and expect to find mercy with God. It's like thumbing our nose at Him. It's, it's just not acceptable. The leftovers. Don't, don't bring God your leftovers. Bring Him your first fruits. Bring Him the effect of His Word at work in your own life. But Micah cannot find any righteous, none who will timely seek the Lord. Instead, they seek Him only after He has brought judgment and disaster upon them. Verse 2. That was verse 1. Yeah, that was verse 1. Verse 2. The faithful man has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among men. They all lie and wait for blood. This is like brigands on the side of the road waiting for uh, the, the merchants to come by. You know, and they whip out their guns and rob them blind and shoot everybody. You know, he says, that's what it's like in his day. Violence is everywhere. Sinfulness is everywhere. And he is despondent over seeing this so widespread in his own time. I'm despondent over it as I look at it myself. Scripture always gives us a view of reality, a picture of our own time, doesn't it? Every man hunts his brother with a let, with a net, that they may successfully do evil with both hands. The prince or the earthly, the earthly ruler asks for gifts. Oh, you want to walk on my highway? Give me some money. The judge seeks a bribe. Oh, you wanted to get out of this? Here's my bank account. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new under the sun. All the sinfulness that we see has always been. It's part of the human nature. And the great man utters his evil desire, and so they scheme together. They work this out together. There's a conspiracy going on. <laughs> the best of them is like a briar. A briar. The most upright is sharper than a thorn hedge, it says. Ever fallen into a, a rose bush? used to do this in, when I was a kid. We had rose bushes down the side of our yard. And uh, we used to try to jump over them. Uh, I wasn't always successful. <laughs> so you know that the more you struggle, the more you're cut and you're torn by it. My mom would say, look at that blood all over that new shirt I just bought for you. you know, so anyway. But what an image this is. What an image this is of the cost of sin and of hanging around evil companions. Uh, well, yeah, my neighbors were problematic, the kids I ran with, but. Anyway, other story. Verse 4, part B. The day of your watchman and your punishment comes. Now shall be their perplexity. Huh? <laughs> their confounding. In other words, they'll be at a loss, not knowing which way to turn or how to escape or where to hide. What about relying on friends and family? You know, can't they be trusted? Surely our friends and family could be trusted, right? Always turn to them if we're in need. Verse 5. <laughs> Don't trust in a friend. Don't trust in a friend. Not in his day, not in his age, not the way things were going. There was a day when you could, but in his day you couldn't. It's getting to be that way in our day. You're not trusting a friend. Don't put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your arms. For son dishonors father, daughter rises against her mother, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own household. In other words, they will betray you. Nazi Germany, 1930s, they will betray you. 
What a contrast this is to Christ's words of deliverance in Luke 12. Do you suppose that I came to give peace on earth? I tell you, not at all, says Jesus. But rather division, father against son, mother against daughter. Well, aren't those two verses like the same thing? No, they're mirror opposites. In Micah, they're betrayed for their sins, sold into bondage for a reward, for bribery. But in the day of our Lord, they're betrayed for their righteousness. They're betrayed because they did something good. And they got betrayed for that. Judas will betray Christ, the righteous one, for just 30 pieces of silver. So what is Micah's conclusion? Does he give up, knowing there's no earthly solution to his moral turpitude that's all around him? Turpitude. Uh, corruption. <laughs> Badness. Moral turpitude. Does he give up? Not at all. Verse 7. Verse 7. The key verse, I think, in this particular chapter. Therefore, I will look to the Lord. I will wait for the God of my salvation. My God will hear me. Hmm. So here we see a three-step solution to every dilemma on earth. Everything we are dealing with in this current generation. Number one, look to the Lord in prayer. That's your first course of action. Look to the Lord in prayer. Number two, wait for him patiently. Okay, Lord, I gave you 30 seconds. Time's up. Where's the answer to my prayer? No. Wait for the Lord patiently. And three, know that he hears you. You know, there's often a doubt. Number one, we doubt that what we prayed is a good thing to have prayed for in the first place. <laughs> but assuming that what we prayed for is even according to the will of God, we doubt that God hears us. We doubt that we'll actually see some sort of tangible response to the prayer that we prayed in the time of our own life. Hopefully in the next hour or two. And so what do we usually do? We stop praying. Don't do that. that, 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 that that's, you don't want to do that. Keep praying. Keep looking to the Lord. Keep waiting patiently. He does hear you. So what will these three steps do for what ails Micah, what ails us today? Well, they uh, get his eyes off himself. That's one thing, right? They get his eyes off himself. These three steps. They get his eyes off his adversity, the stuff that he's going through. They get his eyes off the insanity that he sees going on around him. They get his eyes off this fallen world. Three steps. Look to the Lord, wait for him, know that he hears you. These steps put his focus where it needs to be on God. He alone can fix what ails us. God alone can fix what ails us. He alone justly punishes the evildoers. Yeah, but I want him punished now. Why is nobody accountable? Oh, they are. And their day is coming. And I wouldn't wish that on anybody, even my enemies. That day is coming. Trust in that. Trust that God will punish. And he'll do it justly. He alone can cure this depravity that we see around us. He alone can do that. We can't do that. The laws can't do that. Human morality is not going to result in that. Only God can do that. Through Jesus Christ. Our hope and our trust is in God alone because they can be found in God alone. Here's something that's not on your handout. If you want to, you can write down the following verses. 
Psalm 39, 7. Psalm 56, 3. Psalm 71, 5. Hebrews 2, 3. Where do you find your hope and where do you find your trust? It's in God alone. Those are the verses. Psalm 39, 7. 56, 3. 71, 5. And Hebrews 2, 3. And therefore I will trust in the Lord. And so Micah turns to God in prayer, waiting patiently for an answer, knowing that he is heard. And in turning to God, simply, simply turning to God, that's all any of us has to do, simply turn to God, we too can find peace in our mind, rest for our soul, hope in our heart. With that plan of action settled, Micah then turns to his enemies. As for you guys, verse 8. Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. That's followed by a raspberry. (laughs) When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. That's confidence in God. We need that sort of confidence ourselves. We need to be confident that in this present darkness, God's light still shines. And then remember that it shines through us. Oh, Verse 9, I will hear the indignation of the Lord. Why? Why? Because I have sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes justice for me. He will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. Micah never declares himself righteous. He never claims that he's different from the rest of the folks around him. You won't find that anywhere in his book. He's nothing like the Pharisee who boasts in his own goodness. Instead, he is like the tax collector beating his chest. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Micah is interceding on behalf of his people. I'm just like them, Lord. Forgive us. Have mercy upon us. Micah confesses that he too has sinned against God and is worthy of God's justice. But for the grace of God, I stand condemned. Every one of us can say that, can't we? But for the grace of God, I stand condemned. That's our confession as well as his. But Micah doesn't stop at his confession of sin. So often we do. Don't do that. Confession without repentance is no good. He looks to the mercy of God and Jesus Christ, looking forward to that day when he will be delivered from sin and death. He says, he will bring me forth to the light. That's what this verse says. I will see his righteousness. Or as Paul put it, not a righteousness of my own. I will see his righteousness. But that which comes from God by faith. Scripture is utterly consistent from start to finish, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament. Christ said nothing new. He simply explained what had already been written in a way that we could understand it, visibly and by example. This is what my Heavenly Father meant. This is what you are to do. Watch me walk in my path. Now comes a curious verse, verse 10. Then she who is my enemy will see, and shame will cover her who said to me, Where is the Lord your God? My eyes will see her. Now she will be trampled down like mud in the streets. Who? (laughs) Who in the world is he talking about? Who is this she that Micah speaks of? I expected it to be Satan. But he's not a she. So the accuser of the saints, I expected that's the one that he's been speaking about. But no. Satan was the one who accused Job. But here instead we have this poetic reference to Jerusalem. 
He's referring to the city of Jerusalem, the place where he lives, the capital of his nation. And he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, much like Christ will say in the New Testament. Isaiah, who was a contemporary, as I said, of Micah, wrote this scathing indictment of this city, Jerusalem. Put it up on the board for you. How the faithful city has become a harlot. It was full of justice. Righteousness lodged in it. But now, guess who's there? Murderers. God pleaded with Jerusalem to repent. He offered many promises that she did and threatenings that she didn't. And so Isaiah the prophet calls out to her at the same time that Micah's calling out to his own cities. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Believe it or not, until this sermon, I didn't realize that he was speaking of a city. I always use that to speak to my fellow believers. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. But he's speaking to an entire city, and through that city, to an entire nation. He doesn't notice a distinction between the one and the other. When Sodom and Gomorrah went down, remember, somebody interceded for them, Abraham. And he says, if you could find, you know, 30, how about 20? How about 10? Would you save the city for 10's sake? And God said, I will save the city for 10's sake. And then he destroyed the city. Why? There weren't 10 to be found. Huh. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now he's speaking of Jerusalem, and yet he's speaking to the people of Jerusalem as if they are Jerusalem. When he speaks to us, he speaks to the bride of Christ, to the entire household of God. We can say this to one another because we belong to that household. We are responsible for one another. This is the proof of it. This is the statement of Micah that we are responsible for our brother. Not like Cain. What? Am I responsible for my brother? Not my job. Not my job, man. And yet God says, yeah, it is. You're responsible for one another to hold one another accountable to encourage one another, to help one another walk the straight path. But Jerusalem would not come to God in order to have life. Just like many of those who are lost will not come to Christ to have life. And so Micah says, verse 11, In the day when your walls are to be built, in that day the decree shall go far and wide, and in that day they shall come to you from Assyria, and the fortified cities from the fortress to the river, from sea to sea, and mountain to mountain, and yet the land shall be desolate. Why? Because of those who dwell in it. Oh, man. And for the fruit of their deeds, not their good deeds. Mike refers back to verse 1, in which he could find no fruit, no remnant. The only fruit to be found is the fruit of their sinful deeds. And yet he calls upon them in verse 11, repent, turn. He doesn't say that. Yeah, he does. The land should be desolate because of those who dwell in it and for the fruit of their deeds. Therefore, you don't want the land to be desolate. There's a, there's a solution to this problem. Plant seeds of righteousness. Break up that fallow ground. 
and begin walking in righteous ways again. Christ told the parable of the barren fig tree which had no fruit in season, and so it was scheduled to be cut down if it produced no fruit in the coming season. This is from Luke 13, verses 6 through 9. It's up on the board for you. Uh, That tree in the background is a fig tree growing in the plains of Africa, just so you know. He also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, Look, for three years I have three years I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground or encumber the ground, if you like the King James? But he answered and said to him, Who is this answering? That's the vine dresser. By a metaphor, it's the Holy Spirit. But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, all well and good. But if not, after that you can cut it down. God gives us an opportunity to repent. God is ever faithful to give us an opportunity to repent. He never just says, you know, we sin and poof, that's it, you're done. He doesn't do that. He always gives us that opportunity to repent. By contrast, Christ cursed a barren fig tree which had leaves, but it had no fruit when its master sought it. He cursed it even though it was not even the, the season for figs. That's from Mark 11, verses 13 and 14. The conclusion we can draw from that is this. That tree had been fruitless for years. That tree had been fruitless for years, the same as this parable that he gave. The conclusion is that it had been fruitless for years like the parable. It had been hardened in its sin. We're told, beware that deceitfulness of sin. Well, it's just this one time. Well, it's only been a couple of times. Well, it's not that serious. Well, it's not as bad as what other people are doing. And we become inured to it. We become desensitized to our own sin and to the sin of those around us. This constant Deluge that we're getting off social media. This deluge of stuff we're getting on YouTube and the rest of it. Mass media coming at us is making us insensitive, desensitized to sin in our own time. We see so much of it. It doesn't even phase us anymore. It doesn't turn our stomach. It doesn't cause us to roll our eyes and to fall on our knees and pray to God, forgive this generation for their sinfulness. We just say, yeah, yeah, seen that before. It'll get worse. And we don't react to it the way we should. We are not appalled by it. We must be appalled by the sin that we see. Here in Micah, Jerusalem is still in that period of grace when God's mercy may yet be sought and may be found. If it will only repent and not oppose the word of God that's been spoken to it by its prophet. If only we here this morning will respond to God's word. Be encouraged to respond to it in righteousness, in mercy, in forgiveness, in compassion. So Micah changes gears. He intercedes with God on behalf of Jerusalem. He sounds like Moses interceding for the Israelites after they worshiped the golden calf. God says, I'll just wipe them out, Moses. I'll, I'll, I'll create a new Israel through you. Moses, no, 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 Lord, that's bad PR. No, don't do that. So Micah cries out here, referring to that same exodus from Egypt so many years before. Verse 14, 
title of today's sermon. Shepherd your people with your staff. Shepherd your people with your staff. The flock of your heritage who dwells solitarily in a woodland in the midst of Carmel. Let them feed in Bashan and Gilead as in days of old, as in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt. I will show them wonders. That's the pledge of God. As in the days when you came out of the land of Egypt, I will show them wonders yet again. Remember those ten plagues? Ten wonders that God performed. The splitting of the Dead Sea, a wonder performed by God to to save and to redeem His people. That's the pledge you're hearing here. That wasn't a one-time event. God will come. God will deliver you if you will only turn to Him and wait on Him and expect Him to hear your prayers. Now that's the promise and the hope of Israel. God shepherds His people with His rod and with His staff. In chapter 6, Micah called upon his people to, quote, hear the rod of correction. What? Whack! I heard it! I heard it! (laughs) Yeah. Ever been hit by one of God's two-by-fours? Can you hear me now? Yes, Lord, I hear, I hear. And to listen to God's warning with the intent to obey. That's how Josh put it last week. It's listening to God's warning with the intent to obey. Yeah, yeah, I heard you. No? (laughs) No, not what I mean. I want you to listen with the intent to obey. The rod keeps the sheep from straying. It protects them from wolves. Here Micah calls upon God to shepherd his people with his staff. He pleads for God to rescue his sheep. That was the rod in chapter 6. Here we are in chapter 7, and he's pleading with God to shepherd his people with the staff. What's the staff? What makes that different than the rod? It's no longer the whack up alongside the head. In Psalm 23, David says this, Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You like that little M? (laughs) Picture on the board. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why not? For you, my Lord, are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The Hebrew word for comfort here means to be sorrowed by what you've done. To be sorrowed by what you've done. It, it, It expresses regret. And it indicates repentance on our part. Yeah, but it says comfort. I know how they translate it. I'm telling you what the Hebrew means. Okay, it can be used in all those contexts. And all those contexts are intended here. It means being brought up short like a parent's tap on our bottom. Do you remember those? Do you remember giving those? Not yet. (laughs) But it's coming. Anyway. Tapped on the bottom. And when we get that little tap on our bottom... We remember that we've been kept from further danger. No, no, honey, don't touch the stove. (laughs) No, no, honey, don't run out in the street. No, 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 honey. (laughs) Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. They give me that sense of security and of being cared for and watched over by our Heavenly Father. We're comforted by that knowing that the God of our yesterdays and the God of our todays and the God of our tomorrows is looking out for us. He goes before us, he goes behind us to ensure that we won't get lost. Like that sheep who's off on his own. Out of that arises a song of thanksgiving in our heart. With a sense of being protected. And a knowledge of God's enduring love for us. Enduring love. I'm sorry, you can't steal, you can't turn off that love that he has. I've loved you with an everlasting love. It ain't going to end. 
yeah, but I did this and I did that and I did the other and I feel so bad and I'm guilty and everything. Oh, shut up, I love you. <laughs> God constantly reminds us of his love because we so easily forget it. We are so quick to condemn ourselves when God will not condemn us. Remember Jesus with Mary? Is anyone left to condemn you? No. Well, then neither do I. Ha. My love will not end. We're not just saved. We are safe in his arms. We're not just saved for eternity. We are safe today in his arms. Even though dangers and temptations lurk behind every rock, God is with us every step of the way. David the shepherd prayed to God, asking him to shepherd his people and to use his rod and his staff of discipline to do that. David knew the good shepherd was coming. God promised him that one from his own loins would sit upon the throne and rule his people forever, and he looked forward to the coming of that Christ, that promised one of God, that anointed one. David looked forward to that day. And so does Micah. He looked to Bethlehem, What does it mean? The house of bread. Bethlehem, the house of bread for the manna that would come down from heaven to feed his people and would sustain them in the desert of this world. All those images of scripture all describe one thing, the Lord Jesus Christ. As Mike alluded to in chapter 6, the day is coming when God will again, again deliver his people out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. As he did of old, he will do it with mighty wonders and an outstretched arm. The birth, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, the rushing wind at Pentecost, these are the wonders that are promised here. How do we know? We don't know at this point in time, but down the road, oh, is that what he meant? Yes, that's what he was pointing to. This was the fulfillment of that, yes. God's word, one thing. God sees all of that in one glance. We can't. We're sequential. God sees from above. All those wonders promised will be fulfilled in their own time. And that's why Micah follows immediately with this, verse 16. The nations shall see and be ashamed of all their might. They shall put their hand over their mouth. (laughs) That sounds like Job. Well, shut my mouth. I spoke without knowledge. Their ears shall be deaf. They shall lick the dust like a serpent. They shall crawl from their holes like snakes of the earth. You shall be afraid of the Lord our God and shall fear because of you. You, Lord God, they will fear because of you. Micah closes his collection of oracles with one of the most beautiful, beautiful expressions of God's grace in all of Scripture. He's beginning in verse 18. He speaks poetically because that's the only way he's going to be able to capture some of the wonder and some of the majesty of what he's about to convey. Who, he asks, who? Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in mercy. And Micah looks outward speaking to the the people of Israel. He says to his people, he will again have compassion on us. He will again subdue our iniquities. Our God will do that for us because he loves us. And then he looks upward to God. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. (laughs) What a beautiful image looking up to his loving God saying, 
You're going to take all these things that are burdening me, this bondage that I find myself in to sin, all the consequences of it that I fear day in and day out, this darkness that I walk in, and you will take all of those away from me and cast it in the sea and it shall be no more. Oh, I look forward to that day, says Micah. This phrase, subdue our iniquities, is kind of interesting. Bondage in Egypt is a metaphor for our bondage to sin. We saw in chapter 2 that the walls of our prison will be broken down from inside, setting the captives free. What did Jesus say in the synagogue at Cana? Here is my commission. I have come to set the captives free. Reading from the scroll. And he rolled it up and he said, Today this very, this very prophecy has been fulfilled in your hearing. I'm here. <laughs> All the promises of my Father are now fulfilled in me. Follow me. Believe in me. This phrase in verse 19 refers to that same liberation from sin. Some translation have, he will tread or trample our iniquities underfoot. I like that. I like that. He's going he's to trample our iniquities underfoot. Eh, it's nothing. The word is kabosh. Now, if you're old enough, you have this phrase, you know, he's going to put the kibosh on that, right? Uh, it actually comes from this Hebrew word, kibosh. The word is kibosh. Literally, he'll put the kibosh on our sins. He'll stop them. He'll lock them up. He'll place in bondage the very things which have kept us in bondage to sin and death all our lives. And then he'll toss away the key. <laughs> wow. Wow. What a promise. Micah ends with this from the New King James Version. Verse 20. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham which we have sworn to our fathers from days of old. The ESV translates it this way, you will show faithfulness to Jacob. In other words, you'll fulfill your promises to this nation, to your people. And steadfast love to Abraham, I was never going to withdraw that from you. As you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. Micah 7.20 Micah closes his book with a reminder to God's people that they are his covenant people the people of the promise, and God will not break his covenant with Abraham. The gospel is everywhere in Micah. Not just in the promise in chapter 5 of the shepherd or the ruler to come, but in the promise that God's grace would be extended to all those who confess and repent of their sins, who sow seeds of righteousness and believe God's promise. Micah describes it very simply as hoping and trusting in God alone. If you wonder why that should be enough, for salvation, consider that Micah confesses that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Sounds like you're beating a drum, Bill. Yeah, yeah. That fact alone should cause us to wonder who then can be saved. Isn't that a question we find repeated in the New Testament? Who then can be saved? And the answer that Jesus gave was clear. With men, this is impossible. But with God... But with God, all things are possible. If it's impossible to save ourselves, but it's possible for God to save us, then salvation must be by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in the one whom God sent to save his people from their sins. And that, my brothers and sisters, is Jesus Christ. And that is our hope. If we cannot obey the law perfectly and cannot be acceptable to God without perfect obedience, well, guess what? Somebody else is going to have to perfectly obey it on our behalf. That is Jesus Christ. 
That's why he is our hope. If we can't atone for our sins because we're sinners, then someone else must atone for them, someone who is without sin one more time. That is Jesus Christ, and that is our hope here today, isn't it? Jesus Christ is our Savior, and he's our Redeemer. He's our Lord, and he's our King, and that's by God's sovereign design and by necessity. That's what Micah is is driving home here. It's by necessity. The coming of Christ is a necessity. There is no other solution. There's no other way, and that's why Jesus said emphatically, no one comes to the Father but through me. This is something we need to make clear to all those cults and, and all those others out there, that our salvation is found in Christ, in the person of Christ. Not in us and not in our faith in Christ. It's in Christ. When you're united to Christ, all the promises made to Christ, all the salvation that that is situated in Christ becomes ours. He's the means. No other. And by the way, that is not exclusive. It is inclusive. Despite all the accusations made against Christianity by nitwits out there today. That wasn't kind. Uh, despite the uh, misunderstanding by all those who don't understand the gospel. Our job is to explain it to them. For God so loved the world, the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever, whoever, no limits, no exclusion, whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. John 3.16 And therefore, the people of God, all those who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, will come to him from every tribe and every tongue and every nation without exception, without distinction. The doors, the gates of the kingdom are wide open to all who would come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're all one in Christ Jesus. Jews, non-Jews, slaves free, male, female, all are welcome in God's kingdom. He made us All and each of us bears his image. We are commanded to make that image visible. How then are we to respond to Micah's exhortations? Well, as I said, the takeaway is that our hope and trust is in God alone. But how may we apply in a practical way this week and in each of the days to come in this following year, how can we apply that in a practical way? Well, let's go back to verse 7 with its three-step solution. Verse 7, therefore I will look to the Lord, I will wait for the Lord of my salvation, my God will hear me. So three steps, three steps, up on the board for you. Look to the Lord in prayer, wait for him patiently, and know that he hears you. The Father always hears the Son. The Father always hears the Son. The Father always hears the Son. I'm not saying that, that's in Scripture. That's Jesus Christ speaking, John eleven forty two. And so the Father always hears you. Why? Because you are united to Christ by faith. There's that union with Christ that's so essential to our understanding of the gospel. Jesus Christ is the shepherd of your soul. He is the good shepherd. He came to save you. He came to become one with you. He came to participate in our human nature. Why? So that you might participate in his divine nature. By being united to him through faith. There's nothing you've done that Jesus Christ cannot sympathize with. There's nothing you're going through right now for which he cannot comfort you. There's nothing coming down the road that he isn't aware of. And isn't preparing you for. And won't sustain you in when it does come. 
That's the purpose of his discipline. That's why he disciplines us. It's meant to purify, not to destroy. It's meant to strengthen, not to punish. It's meant to correct, not to frustrate. Christ will cause you to stand in that day, comforting you with the comfort he received from the Father in the day of his own trial. The Spirit of God never abandoned Christ in the desert when he was led there by the Spirit to be tested. Nor will the Spirit abandon you. The angels of God ministered to Christ on that day just as they'll minister to you. How? When? If you look to him in that day. His compassion and mercy are new every morning. They never come to an end. You don't need to know the why for every adversity that you encounter. Just as you don't ask why for every blessing you receive. (laughs) He loves you either way. He loves you in both of those things. Therefore, remember his love for you. Cry out to him in each moment of this present darkness, and he will satisfy your every need. Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, shepherd your people. The worship team will come up. I'll close with a familiar proverb. Seems to fit the exhortation that Micah has given us. It's up on the board for you. This is Proverbs 3, 5 through 8. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct your paths. Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. It will be health to your flesh and strength to your bones. Please join me in prayer. Lord God, your promises are so precious to watch them laid out from start to finish, from Genesis to Revelation, to see them exposed in your prophets, to be nourished and fed by your word, to to know these things, to see them, to understand in retrospect what they meant. Oh, what a wonderful time this is that we can look back when others were looking forward. They didn't know how it was going to take place. They didn't know who it was going to be. They didn't know where it was going to be. They didn't know when it was going to be. And we know. And we know. You have revealed these things to us through your word. May we hold your word precious, precious, precious to us this day and all the days to come. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. (laughs) 